Hiya, Georgie. Do you want a balloon, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? I gotta go. Go? There's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float too! Welcome to Now Playing's review of It. It's me and the Losers Club has officially begun. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. It's summer. We're supposed to be having fun. This isn't fun. This is scary and disgusting. Hosted by Arnie. Here I am, Wheezy. Stuart. I am eternal child. I am the eater of worlds and of children. And you and Jacob. What a bunch of handsome old men. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Go blow your dad, you mullet-wearing asshole! Listener discretion is advised. Time to float. Today we're discussing It. Starring Jaden Martell, Bill Skarsgård, directed by Andy Muschietti. Hiya, Georgie. This is the now playing co-host who always hangs out with the It crowd, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the host who still insists he sees the ghost, Jacob. Here we are, guys. The highest grossing R-rated horror film in history. The highest grossing horror film internationally. The highest grossing global horror film of all time. We've been asked to do this more times than I can count. We're at the real It. Right. This justifies so much Children of the Corn, doesn't it? Like all the things that <laughs> no, we've gone through. No, it's not that great. <laughs> oh, no, that's not what I mean. I'm just saying that I feel like when people said, do Stephen King, they had certain films in mind. Carrie, The Shining, this one. They may have had a blind spot to how much they didn't want to hear about. Well... Also, I think you may have a blind spot as to how long ago we actually started our Stephen King retrospective. We started it and heard demands for Stephen King before this even was filming, before this was a blip on the radar. People wanted to hear The Shining, Carrie, probably Sleepwalkers and Lawnmower Man for humor reasons. But this came out in the middle, and that's when the flood hit. When will you cover it? I thought you guys were doing Stephen King. Well, we're doing them in order of publication. We had to get here, and before this was out, they were announcing that they were planning a sequel. This was going to be called It the Losers Club, so that the next one could have another subtitle, and... As soon as this was out and the first weekend, we knew a sequel was coming. I know the reason you gave to a lot of people, at least through Twitter and Facebook, is like, they're doing chapter two, we think, so we're going to wait for that. Was that the plan? This is not it chapter one. It is at the end they throw chapter one, but it wasn't marketed that way. They could have just thrown that thing on at the last second before they sent it out to the theaters to project. Was that because they saw it testing well, or did they want to get two films out of this? They were very scared to put the price tag on this movie that they had. Upscale horror is very tricky. When you make a horror film, you want it to be cheap. 
and that's how it's profitable. And this thing always came with a big sticker shock. And when they were going to make it first, different director, different Pennywise. I'll be honest, I wish we had gotten that version. I am a big fan of Kerry Joji Fukunaga. He made the first season of True Detective. He had a great season of Maniac on Netflix. He made the film Beast of No Nations with Idris Elba. He'll be directing the next James Bond. I think he's a real talent. And I think his name is actually still appears on the screenplay. I don't think his vision is here, but he worked on it so long, they had to say, we're giving you some kind of credit here. He was the guy that pushed for it, but they would never, it seemed like a question of money. They never wanted to give him the $100 million. Yeah, this has a budget of $35 million, which is still very expensive for a horror film. When we discuss horror films like The Conjuring and things, we're always shocked. It's like, the budget was $9 million, and it made $200 million, and even if it only made 50, it still made so much more than its budget. That's why you guys are still doing The Conjuring. They keep making those cheap films and they keep making money. Yeah, and here, this was a $35 million film. I've got to be completely honest. I had no hopes for this movie. None. Once you saw the trailer? I saw the 1990 version and I was just like, nope. I saw the trailer for this. I was like, meh. And I even, one of the movies we reviewed, I went to see in IMAX, and at the beginning of it, they were really promoting this film hard. They showed the entire Georgie scene, and I was thinking that it didn't work. I saw Skarsgård in there, but wearing glasses of Tim Curry, and with people still getting to their seats, and the lights somewhat on, and I thought, nah, this isn't gonna work. The only reason I went to see it is because I knew Now Playing would cover it someday, and I wanted to be able to say I saw it in the IMAX experience, and I was blown away. This may be my favorite King adaptation. I feel like some kind of alternate universe where we switch places, because I'm usually I say I'm not the horror guy. I'm not the slasher guy, really. You know, usually it's got to be elevated horror to get my interest. Conjuring series, nope, don't want to watch those. But The Lighthouse, can't wait for that movie to come out. Super excited. But I saw the trailer for this. I'm like, damn, that actually looks scary. And I had to go see this by myself because my wife is like, it looks too scary. And you know, when you see something on the big screen, it just plays different. She's like, I'll watch it when it comes out on video. I could get up, walk around if I need to. She's like, I don't want to be stuck in a theater having to watch this. And that was my thing. I'm like, it just, it looks scary. It looks like something that's going to frighten me. I liked the trailer. I saw it in theaters, and then when it was available for home viewing, I had to watch it again with my wife when she'd finally sit down and see it. You know, my attitude is usually is, if I have to watch it for now playing, I'm not going to watch it now. Like, when we made the decision two years ago that we were going to stop the Stephen King series and pick up with Chapter 2 and focus on video games and other stuff, I was like, well, do I need to do this? I kind of just did it because I had the nostalgia for the book. I had wanted Stephen King to be good on screen after so much not good. And this had a good track record. They had money. They had Kerry Fukunaga, once attached, still attached as writer. What do you guys know about Andy Muschietti, who is the person they did end up bringing in to spearhead this? I looked him up. There's a film of his that I want to see. It might be his only film. I don't know if it's any good, but Mama, again, the trailer looks really scary. I haven't seen the film yet. It's one I've wanted to see for a few years, though. I 
watched like half of it and I just didn't get into Mama. Uh, it's not that great. He's a disciple of Guillermo del Toro. He saw this three minute short of Mama and said, I want you and your sister to remake it as a feature. I saw both versions. And here's what I will say about Machete in general. And I think it's also true of it as well. He's a very strong technician. He is able to move the camera. He creates an old-fashioned ghost story atmosphere, and that can be very effective. Specifically with Mama, I just didn't think she was a very good specter of evil. Like, with all the Freudian subtext of making Mother evil, it ends up being a kind of lame grudge sequel. And the only thing I really liked about it was Jessica Chastain, who plays this, like, riot girl rocker who's thrust into a maternal role when these wild children that have been living out in a cabin in the woods for six years come into her care. And so there's this tension of this woman that never wanted to be a mother and this ghost mother that wants to recover claim them. That was kind of an interesting setup, but ultimately, I feel like Machete is kind of one of these guys that gets more excited about jump scares than he does crafting a really good story, and Mama is a lot of booga booga with a not totally convincing CGI Mama crawling on ceilings and gurgling. Well, I think, let's face it, what got this off the bench? Because even before Fukunaga, there was David Kajanik who was working on this, and he had the idea of we're going to set the adult stuff in the modern day. We're going to set the kids in the 80s. He had that idea back in 09, 10. So before Stranger Things. Yes. So we have Warner Brothers New Line sitting around with a script about a bunch of kids in the 80s, or at least a treatment of a bunch of kids in the 80s going on an adventure. And then Stranger Things hits and the 80s nostalgia wave and movies like Goonies and the Spielbergian type of feel, which King really put in his book. You know, while it is set in the 50s, the kids going on the adventure, seeing things their parents couldn't, reminded me a lot of the Spielberg produced stuff. You know, Spielberg has always wanted to make the talisman. There is that marriage of King and Spielberg that is supposed to happen one day. Yeah, I do wonder how much this has to owe to Stranger Things. It's even got one of the stars in the film here playing Richie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it has everything to owe to Stranger Things. I think that's when Warner Brothers was like, okay, Stranger Things, everybody's talking about it. They're selling toys. We can do this. And not to be a wet blanket, but I don't watch Stranger Things. Like, I saw a couple episodes. I thought it was fine. Probably its greatest audience are people that didn't live through the 80s. And thus, it's a real thrill for them to see this recreation. For me, having lived through all that entertainment that looked like it, I'm like, yeah, I remember Stand By Me. I remember Explorers. I remember E.T. I, I already did this. I think a lot of parents, they're like, look at this. This is my childhood, child. Like, I saw a lot of parents having these moments with their kids watching Stranger Things together. Yeah, I agree. I think it's fine. I watched the first two seasons. Haven't gone to the third because that second season was not great. Yeah, let's, as a trio, completely alienate our audience and I'll say I'm with you, Stuart. I watched like four episodes of season one and I just wasn't enthralled. It was fine. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, it's fine. I'm not dinging it at all. But for television, for me, the reason why I like and prefer movies is you can have any experience you want in two to three three hours. I'll go with you anywhere. But when I'm watching something that is endless, I'm much more selective about where I want to go. And I usually don't give many series much more than a couple episodes. Yeah. And that's why I haven't watched season three, even though I hear it's actually the best because that second season burned me and I, yeah, time to move on. I'll say this, my fondness for it and coming back and doing a deep dive into this version of it has me 
wanting more and thinking, maybe I'll give Stranger Things another try. Maybe it'll be the fake version. You know, if IT 2017 is New York pizza, maybe Stranger Things can be Domino's. And it could have been a TV series. In this day and age, people are more likely to adapt something as an ongoing series or miniseries than they are to put into a movie. Again, it's risky to take a book this big and say, we're going to put it on screen. The fact that they want to bring it up to the 80s and cut out all the adult stuff, I don't think it was a guarantee because of the price tag that they felt like a sequel was assured. They were hoped it, they kind of planned it, but they didn't have a script written. There was a lot of misinformation at the time because I had read online trying to figure out, you know, do we wait for a sequel or do we jump on it? And I had read things as much as, oh, they immediately went into filming. Part two is filming now. It's all underway to the script is ready. They have the cast. They know who the adults are. And it's going to be out one year from original it to the true story, which is, Okay, everything we hoped happened and more, so now let's get some big name stars signed and let's go ahead and look at adapting the sequel. And what I will say, having gone to the theater to see it that once when it came out, was I said, oh, they took the best stuff out of the book. If they don't make the rest of it, they might be lucky because the hard stuff is on the cutting room floor. The turtle (laughs) is on the cutting room floor. I counted two turtles in this film. Yeah, you're right. They teased that. Now they're going to have to deliver on that. But that's chapter two. And that came after the enormous success we've already talked about. 700 million worldwide. 330 of that just here in the U.S. And on an R rating. It must have been very tempting with a child cast to say, why don't we make it so that the same age group can buy a ticket without an adult? They did it right. And I think that was important. I remember I felt that way. People I went to the movie felt that way. In order to tell it properly, you really needed to have our level violence. Yeah, watching it this time, it really blew me away that they are going for a hard R and it is all kids. This is goodies, but with lots of blood. And it was a success. You don't think about adults wanting to see something like that, but they pulled it off. And that's very impressive. Yeah, again, I think Guillermo del Toro has pioneered that. Pan's Labyrinth and all that's sort of in his wheelhouse that his belief that fairy tales and things we tell children aren't to say that they're infantile. In fact, they are about a way of processing the dark world just at an early age. And so this is a Del Toro disciple taking on this material. I believe that he's going to have the right instincts and not coddle and kiddify. God knows if you want a sanitized version, check out the film we covered last week. There exists that. Nobody should check that out. We have three red arrows. But here's what I'll say, and just to look at this movie holistically. Yes, I'm glad it's R-rated. Yes, I'm glad that they do some of the things they do here. But man, the scariest things about this book could be PG-13. You know, having seen a lot of PG-13 horror, when I came back and I rewatched this for the second and third and fourth time, I started to realize how much of its style really does feel like some of those insidious, conjuring, sinister films. You know, Pennywise is a shape-shifting clown, a lot like those demons take the form of what scares you, the decrepit house, haunted house type thing. But you put Bill Skarsgård in that makeup, giving the performance he gives against these children who really are able to sell fear, you almost could do it bloodless. Oh, so you like Skarsgård. I love Skarsgård. Oh, well, then we're not going to have a grievance. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I another Del Toro produced film that just recently came out, uh, something like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I haven't seen it, but uh, watching that trailer, and that is PG-13, that was a scary trailer. So uh, you're onto something. You, you could really push things with PG-13 now. I like that we're getting something bloody. Maybe it's PTSD from that 1990 it. And I guess I should mention the Conjuring films are R-rated for intense horror. Maybe this film is so scary that even without the blood, it had to be rated R because <laughs> it's actually scarier than any Conjuring. Mama is PG-13. So again, the attemptation must have been there. Why don't we talk about what they made? Arnie, give us the same plot in an 80s style. Okay, let me put on my Venetian blind shades mm-hmm. and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got the right stuff. <laughs> In the fall of 1988, a young boy named Georgie Denbro is out in a rainstorm playing with a paper boat. But his boat goes down a sewer. Looking for his boat, Georgie finds a clown that calls itself Pennywise, played by Bill Skarsgård. Pennywise draws Georgie in, then giant jaws protrude and bite off Georgie's arm, and the boy is pulled into the gutter. We then jump to spring 1989, the last day of school in Derry, Maine, since Georgie... Other children have gone missing and a curfew is in place. And we meet three groups of characters. The primary group consists of young, nearsighted, wisecracker Richie Tozier, played by Finn Wolfhard. Jack Dylan Grazer is asthmatic, or is he, Eddie Kasparak, whose mother has Munchausen syndrome by proxy, convincing Eddie he is always sick and convincing doctors to give him drugs that were placebos. Wyatt Olaf plays Stanley Ubris, a rabbi's son trying to learn the Korah for his bar mitzvah. And the group's unofficial leader is stuttering Bill Denborough, Georgie's older brother played by Jaden Martell. Bill is obsessed with finding Georgie's body and continually searches the sewers accompanied by his friends. The second group consists of overweight Ben Haskum, played by Jeremy Ray Taylor, who has a crush on Beverly Marsh, played by Sophia Lillis. Beverly is a poor girl, sexually abused by her father, and rumors around school call her a slut. Finally, we have homeschooled Mike Hanlon, played by Chosen Jacobs. The seven all come together due to a common enemy, psychotic bully Henry Bowers and his goons. As a group, the seven, calling themselves the Losers Club, are able to fight off bullies, and Bill starts to crush on Beverly. But these seven are all tormented by Pennywise, who is not a person but a creature that feeds on fear and is able to take the form of whatever terrifies the children, though it always seems to return to the form of Pennywise. Bill's sewer knowledge allows the group to realize it probably lives in a well under an abandoned house. Bill leads an effort to attack it, but they are divided and Pennywise almost kills them, and Eddie leaves with a broken arm. The group falls apart with only Bill and Beverly brave enough to try and kill it again. But it isn't done with them. It takes Beverly hostage to lure its hunters back to its lair. The boys regroup to rescue her, and they go back to the house, where Henry Bauer is waiting for them. Pennywise goaded Henry into killing his abusive father, and now he's ready to kill the losers. But Mike fights back, and Henry falls down a deep well, which I don't see how he could have survived that fall, but we'll find out next week. Maybe he floats. They find Beverly, catatonic after looking at the deadlights in its gaping maw, but Ben kisses her, which brings her back to consciousness. Then they find it surrounded by the floating bodies of its victims. It starts to bite off Stan's face, but he's saved, with punctures all around his face where he was bitten, and Stan blames his friends for leaving him alone to die. It takes the form of Georgie to torment Bill, but Bill sees through the illusion and shoots it in the head with Mike's cattle gun. 
but it isn't killed and gets Bill in its grip and tells the group they can leave and he'll only kill Bill or they can stay and he'll kill them all. Eddie, who had been the most frightened of the group, is the one who refuses the deal and fighting it with Bill shooting it again with the cattle gun, which is not loaded, but the children's faith and teamwork make it flee into the sewers and fall down a deep hole defeated. But after the fight, the kids discuss how it has returned every 27 years for centuries, so they cut their hands and make a blood oath that if it should ever return again, so will they to fight it again. And Bill kisses Beverly goodbye as she's moving away from her abusive father to live with her aunt in Portland as credits roll. And spoiler alert, since we've discussed the miniseries and we've discussed the book, we're going to conjecture about what might happen in It Chapter 2. So if you're worried about spoilers from a, what is it now, 33-year-old book, uh, you might want to not listen until after you've seen Chapter 2. Sorry if you already listened to our It 1990 <laughs> review. I'll put it out there. The scene that I saw in IMAX, the scene that before the movie was ever out, the scene that I shrugged off, I now view and viewed in theaters as the best scene in the entire movie, the Georgie opening. Oh, no. Really? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's rough. Okay. I, I thought this was going to be an easy show. No. Yeah, I was hoping that, okay, again, I'll re-say what I said about Mama. Machete is a very talented technician, and he uses that skill to condense the It chapter into a very coherent collage, and I think he does a great job getting us through the story, but he has a habit of going too far. And this actually, I feel like, is the worst scene in the movie because it goes way, way over the top with Pennywise 2.0. That's called suspense. I will say I have many of the same questions that I had with It 1990 about talking in sewers and all that, but this looks better, and I do get a vibe, you know, we'll see an old lady watching what's going on, and then she'll just walk away. I'm like, okay, so there's some kind of magic with Pennywise making adults not care, making children transfixed, at least in my imagination with this story. That's how I'm interpreting things. I think it looks great. Again, my problem is Pennywise is never going to be this aggressive with any of the other kids, but it's a good opener for a horror film, you want a very violent death. It's better than Mike finding a flyer about a dead kid in that 1991. So it is way over the top. But I also think that isn't that what you do in horror films to grab people? Like you got to have a good death to kick it off to really convince people this is worth watching. The opening is beautiful. You're right. It looks so good. You don't want to find fault. It is so wonderful to see a King film budgeted in this way, shown in this way where the camera is fluid and moving and the acting of the children are so good. And you have that little creep out moment when he runs downstairs because he's afraid of the cellar and he gets the paraffin to finish the boat. There's those twinkling little eyes in there in the dark. And all of this is very good until Bill Skarsgård shows up. Blasphemy. I'm willing to hear both sides. I'm not completely won over by him. Hello! I'm going to be scary! Talk about a ham. Listen, I like the voice because he's supposed to be a clown. I like the inflection. I like the facial expressions, the look. 
everything about him, the way he has that menace in subtle ways. Menace? This is like the birdcage. This is way camp. This is way over the top. I guess if hamming it up isn't your thing, then you won't like this performance. I do like how hamming it is. I, I will say the look, and I've talked about this before, simplicity is usually the best way, like don't overthink it. And they half overthink it just a wee bit, like with those lines that go up his face and through his eyes. But I like it as an old timey clown. Like clowns are scary already. You don't have to overdo it. But I like that he hams it up. It reminds me of clown, but I agree that it is hammy. Honestly, I feel like some of this design might be for toy reasons. They have made so many toys of this Pennywise and things. I think that without those lines, it would be easy to mistake it for Ronald McDonald. But I look at the icons of horror, like Robert England as Freddy Krueger. He played it big. I love them for that. You don't want a supernatural monster to play it like he's Ted Bundy. If you are in this outlandish clown suit in a sewer with a balloon, this is the way to play it. And I think his physicality, his facial expressions, that thing he does with his lip, I'm all in on Skarsgård. I have to ask a question because watching this with the 12-year-old, she wanted to watch it. I'm like, you could stay in as long as you got to tap out. No shame in that. It gets too scary. She's laughing a lot of the times at Pennywise because they do this thing like with his eyes. They're like looking in different directions. I don't know if that's from the book. And this one looks like he has a big forehead again, too. Not as big as Tim Curry's, but it looks like there's some kind of prosthetic there. I'm not, I don't know why they gave him that weird look, especially with the eyes, how they're looking in different directions so many times. That was something that the director wanted to do. He told Skarsgård, we're going to CGI this in post to make your eyes go different ways. And Skarsgård's like, why CGI it? Boom. He can do that. He can cross-eye himself. I can ruin my vision for free. <laughs> so he was following the director's ideas there. The forehead, I've never paid attention to Bill Skarsgård. I looked, the only thing I've seen this man in was Atomic Blonde, and I don't remember him in it. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of movies he's been in. I don't recall him, though. Yeah, here... I watched the featurette about how he found the character and everything. And yeah, seeing him and seeing it, there's definitely a large prosthetic forehead there to try to give him that balding look and things. I think in certain ways, they might be beholden to Tim Curry. They do know that Tim Curry casts a long shadow, but they had a lot of actors try for the role of Pennywise. And they said they all did the same thing until Skarsgård came in. And when he came in for the audition, he was in full clown regalia and gave a performance like no one else. And he makes this movie. I think this scene flops because of him. It underlines what, Jacob, you were talking about last time, about the absurdity of a child having a large dialogue with a clown sticking his face out of his... It's just funny. Like, this feels like the Darwin Awards. It's the 1980s, okay? We're past Gacy. If a child is dumb enough to, like, talk to a clown in the sewer, okay, we're just weeding out the gene pool. This is really bad. <laughs> Admittedly... By this age, I would have been his age in 1980. I was told not to talk to strangers. I don't even think I was allowed to go out in the street alone. I think my mom was still walking me to the bus stop. It's such a movie trope, like, well, I'm Pennywise and you're Georgie. See, we're not strangers anymore. Like, how many times has that happened in a film? Okay, but King did put it in his book. Okay, but you're making this in 2017. I mean, they've updated it. They're not beholden to that. It's in the 80s instead of the 1960. 
Machete is just, basically, he just is going to milk it for every last drop, which to me is just overkill. And like, this won't be the only time, but throughout this movie, I think his choices 65, 70% of the time are pretty spot on, but someone really needed to rein in Skarsgård. He's way too big. That Frank Oz voice, the way that he's just overdoing. Yeah. Who couldn't tell you're evil? Even this six-year-old <laughs> should know you're an evil clown because that's how Skarsgård is playing it. And I do know that Fukunaga, his choice, had been cast, had been doing makeup tests, was Will Poulter, who you might know from recently Midsummer. He's the ginger. He was in Detroit. He did a Black Mirror Choose Your Own Adventure episode. He's in The Revenant. I'd like to believe, because I've seen his work, that he would have reined this in, whereas Skarsgård on Castle Rock, on his Netflix horror show, Hemlock Grove, I've never liked him. I like the makeup on him. I think he looks good in costume, but just dial it back, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> no, I like that he plays it big, he owns the screen, and he brings menace. I feel bad for Georgie when those teeth come out. Yeah, he brings too much menace. He telegraphs, I'm evil, I'm evil, I'm evil. That's bad <laughs> acting. No, that makes sense for a monster who feeds on fear. A, a monster that seduces children needs to be seductive. And this is telegraphing runaway. The only thing I'll give it is because the special effects people put that twinkle in his eye. It makes me feel like Georgie can't help himself. He's hypnotized that he's in the deadlights. That's what I've been saying all along. He hypnotizes the kids. Yeah, we see that because of the special effects artists, because they're trying to help this performance. Actually, that's all straight out of the book that Georgie saw different colored eyes. You know, this movie takes a lot of liberties and does not hold itself to King's book, but this is almost a verbatim adaptation. That's fine. I'm just saying that's the special effects helping out the performance. This performance needs no helping out. It's the special effects following the book. Let me put it this way. I needed to believe that magic was happening here because I wouldn't believe that a child would talk to the clown. I believe that a child this young would talk to a clown. And see, that was all, that's why I brought it up last week. Like, I just thought magic comes out of his sweat glands and kids get hypnotized because, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. That never happens, though. The kids run from him every other time. That is one of my problems with this story is, like, we only see Pennywise act like this once, but it's a good opener for a horror movie. I'm not going to strike against it for that. Let me proceed then. Then we get some bad CGI of these fangs coming out, and they cut to a cat reaction shot. There's one thing that I think looks bad, and it is on the screen for less than a second. But there is a, a what I believe to be a practical effect of giant jaws on Skarsgård's face. Or maybe that isn't even Skarsgård. That could all just be a fake head on a fake arm. And it's for just a fraction of a second. But there's no movement in that shot. That shot should have been cut. As for the cat, I don't mind the cat. I like that there was a witness. And then the silly extra arm that comes out and the kid's crawling around with one arm and gets dragged. I'm like, this scene is bad. I will just say, having watched this scene, it made me be very worried about the direction of this movie. I'll just to preview my thoughts. I like this movie. This is an example, in my mind, of a director who's so eager to scare the shit out of you that he's not afraid to go to the whoriest realms of overindulgence. It's too bad he doesn't trust the audience to be uh, more scared by subtlety. And maybe it's because it's a six-year-old child and a mouse being hung over the mouth of a cat. 
but this is the most scared I get in the whole film, and I feel so bad for Georgie for the rest of the film. I guess I'm on Stuart's side, because I, yeah, I do feel ultimately, technically looks great. I don't get scared a whole lot, and maybe because, yeah, it's so over the top at times. But, again, this opener, I, I think is a great, it's a great horror opening, but, yeah, I'm not scared by it, because it is kind of ludicrous. I laughed at the death. I forgot Georgie got pulled into the drain. I thought, like, the book, he was, I remember some shot, I thought, it's where we see him crawling away with one arm. I forgot that he got pulled back in, but man, I just, and again, to have such a young actor play this death scene and sell that fear so well and to like tell the kid, oh, you lost an arm and you're bleeding to death now and you're trying to crawl away. And I'm sorry, but Skarsgård, you like popcorn? Because of pop, 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 pop. I, I'm into this movie immediately. Yeah, it seems like a crazy man. <laughs> Let's get to six months later, shall we? Because that can be a lot more complimentary. Again, I'm not here to ding this movie. I'm here to highlight that this movie's biggest problem is it doesn't have restraint. And there will be a few times, 30% of the time, that I see the director pushing the material for more than it's worth. But I really do like, once we see all of these children in their element on the last day of school, June 1989. But we start with Mike, like, that's going to be our main character in this, with Mike and the sheep, with some analogy that I'm not fully getting. You can be in there with them or out here with us. Yeah, you got. You can't hesitate. I Look, I'll say this. Look, I don't want to take away a black character, make someone else African-American. This Mike character is not needed. He does nothing in this movie. And I don't know what all this stuff at a slaughterhouse killing sheep has to do with his story arc. Maybe it'll be illuminated because we've only seen half of this story unfold. I will say the same complaint that I had with the TV miniseries is also true here. Although I like every performance that wasn't true last week, I do feel five kids would be better than seven. I like the large ensemble, but I agree with you. Mike is not properly utilized. The fact that he's homeschooled and not even aware of these kids versus how it's been in the previous adaptation in the book. The fact that for reasons unknown, you know, in the book, Mike learns everything about the town from his father. And the fight with Henry goes back a generation where Henry's dad was racist against Mike's dad. Here... Again, for reasons I don't know, maybe they'll justify it in the next one. We got to take this film as a solo film. They weren't sure if they were getting a sequel, but that he's with his grandparents. His parents died in a fire. He's slaughtering sheep. He's delivering meats to restaurants and he's being picked on by this kid who has no idea who he is. I like to think that the 80s were far more integrated. I had African-American friends in the 80s. My mother didn't like them, and my mother actually wouldn't let me go to their house. But I had friends who were African-American. I like to think that that wouldn't just be a target for bullies who already have so many targets already. They don't need to go out looking for more. Yeah, it feels like they go against everyone. I mean, they're not throwing the N-word around here, but bullies are going to bully. I don't have an issue with that. My issue is Mike. We see him at the beginning here, and then he's going to go away for a very long time. Yes, and I forgot Mike was in this movie the first time I watched it. When he shows up again and finally integrates with the group so late in this film, it feels like a waste. Yeah, the ones that we like are the ones that are at the school. Richie, Mike, 
Eddie. Those are the three that you really feel like you need. Stan. I don't need Stan. We'll get to him a little bit later. They're talking about Stan. Of course, they're confusing a bar mitzvah for a bris. They think they're going to do something to Stan's penis <laughs> when he becomes a man. And then we're going to travel around the high school. Again, in a, in a way that feels very energized, where I feel like the director is really in control with the soundtrack. He's got the cult going, and we're meeting all the characters. And they're all being unified, really, by the fact that they are bullied. All of them are oppressed in the school environment, many of them by Henry Bauer. That's who finds them at the front of the school and basically says the gloves are off to Bill. Bill slights him when he's body checked and he's like, you know, I've given you a pass because your little brother died. But from now on, watch out this summer. You're going to get it as bad as anyone else I decide needs to ass whooping. During this scene where the it's, first of all, a very long tracking shot of them walking through the school. I have to really compliment the cinematography. The cinematographer is not returning for the sequel. He's doing a Zombieland double tap. So I'm really looking forward to Zombieland for the filming of it. But having seen a lot of 80s period pieces that run the gamut from exaggeration and all end up looking like garbage pail kids of the movie fashion to they're wearing generic clothes of today and calling it the 80s. This is pitch perfect. The hairstyles, the stripes, the clothes. This is the 80s I lived in, and every detail feels right. I like that this isn't hyper 80s. Like, that is a complaint with Stranger Things, that that is hyper 80s. Like, every top 10 hit, that's all people listen to in the 80s. No, no, it wasn't really like that. Like, everyone's talking about Star Wars. Like, no, there were other movies. Like, this feels much more period accurate. The the burns, the playground taunts are that specific. Richie, the way he's like, being inside an arcade is better than being inside your mom, feels exactly like what you're, you were proud of. If you could come <laughs> up with that on the fifth grade playground, you knew you would, you would iced it. It was awesome. Totally awesome. I find a little bit of interesting casting with Finn Wolfhard here. He just doesn't come across as the slick, wisecracking. He's supposed to be Mouth, right, from Goonies, who has all the wisecracks. He just does not come across that way in this. He comes off as annoying as I found Seth Green and Harry Anderson in the last film. Like, just an annoying character, and I guess that's how he's written. It is weird if you have watched Stranger Things, because very different character that he plays there. So it's kind of jarring seeing him make a bunch of your mama jokes and dick jokes. <laughs> yeah, Rich is great. Are you saying he's not good? I find him annoying. I would not want to hang out with this kid if I was a child. I probably was partially this kid as a child as I tried to get these wisecracks off. I don't think I was as quick-witted, but I just feel like there should be a little bit more confidence, even if he is still a bullied loser, than what we get from this character. I just would expect to see a members-only jacket, perhaps, but <laughs> my favorite casting is of Eddie Jake Dylan Grazer, we talked about him earlier this year in Shazam, where he played the orphan. Freddie Freeman. Here, you know, he's smaller than everyone else. He's a good half a head shorter than everyone else. He looks like the runt of the litter to be the supposedly sickly one. I really like him in this. Yeah, I think all these kids are great, but yeah, I do like, I guess I like the losers of the losers. Like, Eddie and Stan are, are my favorite. They're like, they're the ones I relate to the most in this film, but uh, talking about the acting, it's great all around. 
Agreed. I looked up these kids. Some of them I knew, like Jack Dylan Grazer and Wolfhard, but some of them really haven't worked much at all before. The casting of this is sublime. And you have to give Machete some of the props, too, because if a kid is good on screen, I tend to want to cite the director. They they got that performance because children just naturally aren't. I mean, I think kids are better today because they're more, they're put on camera earlier in their life. They've learned, they've trained to do selfies and such. So maybe you, you can be a more skilled actor at a young age, but you really do need that help of a good director that's watching you and getting your best take. And he's getting great takes from everybody. And Skarsgård said that, like, after some of the performances, you know, the kid would be, like, really scared on screen. And Skarsgård would be like, are you okay? Did I hurt you? And the kids would be like, oh, I love what you're doing here, man. You're bringing great energy. I'm just really loving what you're doing. It's, like, so Hollywood. But it's it's like they're playing two roles. They're playing the role of a normal 80s kid on screen. And then when they yell cut, they're playing the role of a Hollywood big shot actor. The other thing that they've done, though, and, you know, they just didn't have time in the TV movie is they've given them through lines. They've given them full storylines. Bill will be defined by what happened to Georgie. The whole reason they're hanging out in the Barrens this time is because he has set up this elaborate, he took his hamster tubes and his dad's blueprints, and he did this whole science experiment about where Georgie would have ended up if he went down the drain where the neighbor saw him. And he's figured out, like, I can find him if I explore the Barrens. That's why it's the focus of their summer. Yeah, I asked, why did they build a dam in the last movie? Like, this one, I understand his obsession with being around the sewer. And I like that he uses a G.I. Joe figure. Like, you know, anybody who's actually doing this kind of computation would realize the mass of a G.I. Joe figure falling into plastic tubes is not equivalent to a six-year-old body. But that's what kids would do, is say, my G.I. Joe figure is Georgie, and just push him in the tubes. And yes, it adds so much. The weight of Georgie's death, which impacted me greatly, is a cloud over this entire film that keeps it from ever being feel-good. Bill will not accept the fact that his brother is dead. His father will tell him that. Sometimes his friends slip up and say that because a whole bunch of other kids have gone missing as well. And he will never accept that. He will take this whole film to come to terms with letting that character be dead in his mind and actually having to put the bullet in his head. So it's it's quite a, a, a story arc for any dramatic actor to take. The fact that this young actor is able to take us on that journey, props to everyone. And I like that they reinforce that idea that he can't let it go as they're leaving school. We'll see a mom whose daughter went missing and she's standing there like she went missing, what, weeks ago and still hoping she walks out of that school. Yeah. I mean, we'll find out where that daughter went too. that's again, there's rarely a dangling thread. If there is, I feel like it's a tease for the next movie that will be answered. I feel like the script is very tight. Yeah, it feels like it was made as a standalone to me. It was at least made with the idea that this could be all that there is. And and that tracking shot doesn't end with the boys. That The fact that this is just a long shot, ape Scorsese all you want, but they then take it into the women's restroom where we get to see bullies picking on Beverly. She is also bullied. Yeah, we'll find out there's a female bully. The counter to Henry was Greta, the pharmacist's daughter, who Beaverly, because she is quote-unquote a slut, they're going to slut-shame her by dumping lots of waste from the women's bathroom atop our poor female outcast. Lest you think this is too much, Machete 
said this actually happened to him in grade school, that his uh, some bullies dumped a wet garbage over the stall onto him. And yet she's perfectly clean when she runs into the new kid on the block. This is a little weird, awkward setup. He's supposed <laughs> to be new at the school, but it's the last day of school, and she just hasn't noticed him this whole time. Whatever. They got some new kids on the blocks jokes here to do. Yeah, and he's newer, but he's been in her social studies class, and oh my god, I'm so old. I forgot there was a social studies class later on. She's like, hi, Ben from social. I'm like, they're taking sociology? No, social studies. And she just hasn't noticed him because he's trying not to be noticed. He's the fat kid who doesn't want to be noticed. And so he's shy. But her niceness to him here, signing his yearbook when nobody else signed his yearbook. That's so pitiful. Oh, yeah. But- her signing his yearbook and showing him a bit of kindness, I relate to his plight, you know? You see a little bit of kindness from a really cute girl and you're that age, you think it's love. Right. Hanging tough. And he's, yeah, he's he's learning his way. He's the new kid, but he does like uncool things. What do you mean New Kids on the Block wasn't cool in 89? No boy admitted to liking New Kids on the Block. Like, I don't know if, I, I'm sure there are some boys that did, but no one would admit it. Yeah, ad- admittedly, yeah. Arnie, do you have a confession? Um, I actually didn't <laughs> like New Kids on the Block, but I did like Hanging Tough. I thought that was like the one good song. Okay. <laughs> If she had been paying attention to Ben more, she would notice that he's carrying a diorama of the Dairy Lighthouse that will also be on the love poem postcard that she receives. She should be able to guess that this is her secret admirer. Oh, that's what he was carrying. I'm trying to figure out what this diorama he was carrying was. I never realized it was a lighthouse. I couldn't even figure out why he was taking it. Everybody else is doing what I did. Dumping their school books in the garbage can. School is over. The years I didn't throw mine in my parents' fireplace, they did go right in the garbage. And man, did it feel freeing. So the fact that he was taking this diorama home, I'm like, what is it? These are all the characters that we need. These five are the ones that I like. And you can mix them up and combine. Maybe one of them's black. Maybe one of them is the Jewish character. You can do that. But I feel like five is a really clean number. And seeing these five change over time would be enough. That they also have to throw in Stan here, who has, let's face it, the dumbest phobia of them all. Uh, He doesn't like the oil painting of a woman of a flute. That painting is scary. Yeah, it kind of looks like monks the scream i mean i don't know i had a thing i i don't know if by middle school i was over it but i remember as a child i was always freaked out about pictures coming to life like while i was sleeping and i don't even know that this is middle school if we take them as 11 they'd be going into middle school he's 12 going into 13 because he's going for his bar mitzvah so that's he got to learn this tour this summer and then he'll be 13 it's still straddling the line they are supposed to be barely adolescents in this film and I don't know why you're so opposed to the number seven. I think this is a long movie that gives each of the characters its due. I'm not afraid of an ensemble piece. I mean, last week we mentioned The Big Chill. That had seven. I don't mind. I don't know if they have enough to do with all seven. That's my only complaint. Again, Mike, he doesn't do a whole lot. He doesn't. I don't know what his arc is in this film. I I feel like you could have yeah consolidated some of these yeah and stan's story is just stupid that oil painting attack again this the bad cgi like all of that just cut all of that bad 
But what I like that Stan brings is his own level of resistance. He's the coward of the bunch, and he's not a cowardly lion. He's just a freaking coward who doesn't want to be part of this. And he is different than Eddie, who is also resistant, but in a totally different way. How are they that different? I feel like Eddie is trying to deny existence, whereas Stan is trying to knows it it's real and is scared to hell. I, I I will say this. When I was watching the 1990s version, I'm like, oh, okay, there's a Stan. I'm like, I don't remember a Stan. I guess they did get rid of one character. Okay, that they're going to improve. I had totally forgotten about the Stan character, even though I had seen the movie twice before. Yeah, Eddie is scared because I think he's more scared of his mother than he is of it. I mean, she's introduced and she's a much larger presence, literally and figuratively, than she was in the TV movie. She's obese in this recliner and you, you just get the feeling that she's immobile and that's the way she wants to keep her son to. She doesn't even like that he's going to go with his friends to play croquet. The most innocuous of lawn sports. Obviously, you don't remember Heathers. True. But these are the cast of characters, and it's true of the book, and they've made the choice. They're not going to pare it down. And yes, this is two hours and 15 minutes. So I guess all I would say is, yes, you have the time to develop them because we're not going to cut to their adult counterparts, but you got to make sure they all have clean, good storylines. I don't feel like Stan does. I don't feel like Mike really does. I'll agree with Mike. Mike is underserved terribly. I mean, he gets the first scare of the kids. He's going to be delivering some meat, and basically a scene out of a zombie movie is going to be there with all these hands coming out of a door when he ducks down a back alley to hide from the bullies. Yeah, they're like being burned alive in this butcher shop. It takes a long time to hear his backstory because it will take a long time for the other kids to bring him in. He's the last member of, of the So Chris and Losers Club. And as such, it's a tease of, of what could he be experiencing? What is this fear of these hands? It's not zombies. You would think it was zombies. But in fact, we'll learn that his parents were burned alive in the house that he was in and he barely got out himself. So really, it is taunting him with a fate of death that he barely escaped yeah and they take mike's main role away i I take it if he's the librarian and he's the one that knew all the history they're gonna give that to ben the new kid he's gonna be the one hanging out in the library over the summer giving us all the exposition on the history of dairy which is why you can consolidate them yes and it would be very (laughs) helpful if ben had a fear that we understood he will go through this whole movie and at the end it's gonna for two seconds be a mummy Like, he's afraid of a mummy or something, and we'll see something here as he's digging through old dairy catalogs that he reads about this Easter egg hunt. There was an explosion in 1908 at the Ironworks, and Pennywise was responsible, and now some headless CGI creation is chasing him. I just don't know. All the other kids have such clearly identified fears. And many of them are legit. They're legitimate trauma that is universally understood. I think Ben gets short-shifted, and that's too bad. Yeah, they they take the storyline away about his dad and seeing his dad come back from the war. I'll say this, as a 
scene of horror, I, I like it. He's flipping that page and it's just the same photo over and over, but it's zooming in on the head on a tree and then he sees the headless body in the basement as he's following these Easter eggs. Like my 12-year-old, that was the scene, seeing that headless CGI body like walk around chasing him. That freaked her out. That was the scariest moment for her. I, I like them as horror scenes, but you're right, Stuart. It, like, he, what is his real fear? Everyone else, it's the fear that plays on, on, on something that is inside of them here. It's just something he read. Agreed, but his real fear is expressing himself and being seen. He is a complete loner by choice because he has low self-esteem. But what does that have to do with the Easter eggs and the headless kid? It has nothing to do with it. I'm saying he, I think he has the best non-Pennywise story of the boys and yeah, perhaps the worst Pennywise story of the boys. Yeah, his real fear, more than Pennywise, is Henry. Henry is the bully that's going to actually carve his name into tits, as he's nicknamed, his belly. I mean, that's really frightening to think that another child could be that violent. See, but this is where it goes over the top for me, is when they they cut that H into him, and he is just bleeding out. Like, you gotta go to a hospital. You gotta get that treated. You're gonna get gangrene. It it is just, again, a little bit too much. I don't know. I don't... I mean, he definitely cut through the skin, but I don't immediately jump to gangrene with that. I've had some pretty bad cuts myself. Those kids were not washing their hands (laughs) as they applied those bandages. Yeah, it was a different time. A little Neosporin, rub a little tussin on it, as Chris Rock used to say. But I go with this, you know, other what I consider over the top is, again, a middle schooler who's actually going to cut you with a knife. I mean, that's just a different type of thing that I could think of. I mean, now I guess middle schoolers are going in and shooting up the school, so a knife is tame by comparison. Or they would have just told him to kill himself on Facebook or something. And we want to see a kill. This is a horror movie, and we need to see that. And no, they're not going to take out Henry, because he's too important for the whole storyline. But they've set up this other hanger-on. The the bully club is bigger this time. We have this Patrick Hockstetter, who's going to follow Ben all the way down. Henry lost his knife, and they're going to make that important later. So he's squirreling around in the grass trying to find it, and it's Patrick who chases Ben into the waterworks, and that's where he becomes one of the Pennywise clan. And might I say, of all the 80s characters in this movie, Patrick has the look that just feels the most authentic. Like, I feel like they time travel to bring him in with that hair. And for some reason, the shape of his face just feels like a bully from the 80s or some kids I knew from school. The outfit, this guy just is perfect in looks. I was sad that they killed him. I thought he just, there was something about him. Maybe he was outshining Henry. I just, uh, he was my favorite bully. But yes, he is going to, in those tunnels, meet Pennywise. And honestly, if he was holding down Ben while Henry was carving a letter in him, all of these bullies deserve what they're going to get. And I love Patrick in there. He's got this aerosol can and a lighter. And he's, I mean, that's, more frightening to me than a knife and I remember doing that as a kid too and he's using it to scare Ben and light up the tunnel and he sees what zombies the kids all the ones that have been missing but he will become and Pennywise takes him out pretty damn quick but during the carving there are adults who see 
and do nothing. Yeah, and this tells me, again, Pennywise has some magic over Deary where when you're an adult, you, you again, it's that Peter Pan thing. You forget, you don't care. We'll see all the adults, many of them sit in front of the TV watching like a kid's show. with like It seems like Romper Room or something, and that's just what's playing in the background all the time. I just take it, that is the... Uh, atmosphere of this town because of whatever magic this cosmic spider has cast over it. Right. You can read it either way you want. You can say it's a, literally a clown with evil magic. We'll see a, a red balloon in those people's car as it drives away and they don't help he- and they don't help Ben. Yes. So they're either under his mind control or more to the point people more and more. I mean, we've we've that's happened and usually in in big cities. They they did, you know, studies in New York about terrible crimes that have happened to people and numbers of people that have looked away when you would have hoped someone would have intervened. That's what Pennywise represents. He represents the the need not to do the right thing, to avoid to be complicit in bullying and violence against children. And fortunately for Ben, the other kids are splashing around in the waterworks. I think they were there to look for Georgie, but they find out more of a lead on that missing girl, Betty Ripsom. They find her shoe, and this sets up further and further that they are getting closer to the child abductor's lair. I love Eddie in this scene, talking about the gray water and how it's run off from piss and everything, and his in-depth knowledge of germs. You know, having Eddie there is probably why Ben had absolutely no problems getting that H healed up. Eddie is just an expert on all things germophobia. Yeah, he's he's... Actually convinced that this is how they're going to contract AIDS, which is was very topical at that time. There was a lot of misinformation about HIV at that time. <laughs> and he says it all in that little speech. Yeah, pre-internet. Of course, not that the internet is as educated. It's probably confused as much as, as uh, illuminated. But yes, the, this feels like how kids talk what they believed, what drives them, how they can quickly become friends over being mutually bullied by the same guy, and that they're all going to rally around him, take him to the pharmacy, try to patch him up when they don't have any money, and just so happen to run into Beverly, who is buying tampons because she is of that age. I think all of this, again, is great story compression, really good job, and just keeping this thing moving. Between the book the miniseries in this, this is the best Beverly introduction and integration into the group. In the book, she's just sitting around on a bus stop with nothing to do, and Richie's like, want to go see a movie with Ben and me? And that's how she becomes part of the gang. Here, she's helping them. They're trying to get the things to patch up Ben. They don't have enough money. And Beverly, she's on the other side of the track. She's not going to have the money, but she's going to use her wiles to flirt with the creepy pharmacist and take his attention away. He looks like a creepy pedophile Adam West. Like, <laughs> yes, that that's dude great. is so creepy looking. <laughs> and he's not even Pennywise. It's not like this is going to turn out to be the clown. This is literally just the local drugstore guy who just has no problem like chatting it up with the 12-year-old. We're going to find out later that he's Greta's dad. Right. And that's why she's skittish there. That's why initially she's like, mm, I don't know about this. But it also tells you something about her relationship with men and what her dad might have been doing and why she's comfortable and knowledgeable about the flirting because she will ultimately confess she is not a slut. She has kissed one boy and that was Bill back in a third grade play. And she 
in her mind, has had no experience with boys or men. But clearly there was some training, and this is an uncomfortable, more subtle uh, revelation of what they will make overt later about her relationship with her dad. Yeah, whenever a dad's like, ooh, who's daddy's little girl? Like, there's some abuse going on there. By the end of it, they do nothing to conceal what exactly they're saying. She is being raped by her father, and that is why she gets labeled a slut. It's a very, very tragic circumstance. And so Beverly is a part of the group now. Like, she uh, has a little flirtation with both Ben and Bill there, and was invited to... I, or maybe is she invited or does she just invite herself the next day when they're having a spitting contest and debating about doing some cliff diving? Bill invited her. And yeah, Bill is smitten with, uh, as they call her, Molly Ringwald. <laughs> yeah. That really, uh, you know, nice to have the 80s callback. Sure, got to bring all of that stuff up. But I also think they really did get a very good actress. She's a little bit taller than all of them. She looks a little bit more developed than all of them. And yet you don't feel like it would be an unnatural pairing for her to be attracted to this Bill or this Ben. Yeah, I mean, girls start puberty earlier than boys. There was that era of middle school where it was like land of the Amazon teenager, pre-teenage girls compared to the boys. And here... When I saw the bonus features and things, I thought she might be far older. She is so mature in her character and in her performance and just talking to the camera and saying when she got the role, she's like, oh, God, I'm going to have to hang around a whole bunch of 11-year-old boys. And she was a little nervous about just the atmosphere on set. But she's the same age as the other actors. They're all really the same age. Yeah, I think she was like 15. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, my wife's like, oh, they got a 23-year-old trying to play a 12-year-old? I'm like, all right, let me look it up. And then, yeah, she's 15, a little bit older, but I'm sure they're all a little bit older. Yeah, they, yeah, she has the poise of someone older, and so that's uh, that's right. That feels right here. And she wants to be part of the boys, in part because she doesn't want to be seen as a female sex object by her father. She cuts her hair short so that she can be a tomboy that helps her kind of fit in with the group. And yet when she shows up, she's quick to strip down and we'll see it after they swim and have some fun. Like she's soaking up those rays of sun and all the boys are just looking at her. I I feel like she would have been a little bit more conscious about that being, you know, slut shamed earlier and all that. Yeah, but she's also really comfortable with them. You know, we got to believe that the will of the turtle made them all fast friends. (laughs) That, That is true. There's a turtle in that quarry that they talk about. You know, and the scene with Busta Move and all of them ogling Beverly is just, it's very amusing. You know, all the guys are probably for the first time noticing a female body. But all right, this is minutia and this may just be me. But if the scariest thing in this film is Georgie's death, to me it is. The second scariest thing is here in the cliff diving scene... The actor who plays Ben, Jeremy Ray Taylor, has an inverted nipple, and I've never seen one of those before. <laughs> I've seen them, but it's very distracting. I will admit to that. Like It is so distracting, and I remember reading an article about it, about how that's painful, and how you need surgery to rectify it, or it could really hurt. And I, I've certainly never seen one on screen. I was just really worried about Jeremy Ray Taylor and his nipple, and I can't not fixate. I didn't even notice, so what does it look like? Like it's a dent? Yeah, it's a dent, and it's like a little slit. The nipple goes inward, and 
it's especially bad for women because if they ever want to breastfeed, they're going to need uh, some correction for that. But as you grow older, that can become a very painful thing that you need surgery to rectify. And uh, I didn't know it was a whole thing. I thought maybe just to rouse them a little bit, it will pop out. No, somehow I read an article about it like five years before I saw this movie, and it was such a horrifying thing to think about. It stuck with me all these years, and I just saw it, and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and Yep, welcome to the WebMD podcast. Inverted nips. <laughs> maybe that's something his adult character will explain. But I'll just go ahead and say it again. I feel like Ben and Mike could be the same character. I don't. I feel like this kid should grow up to be the librarian because what we're going to find out is he's been hitting the library a lot. He's been fascinated by the disappearances, and he's found that there is a pattern in Derry. He, he's he's gone out of his way to track the whole history of the town and brings his new friends back to his room to show him how much he's geeked out with the public records. Is it 27 in the book? 30 is a nice round number. 27, that, that's a little weird. But again, if you're an interdimensional space spider, yeah, go for a weird number like 27. Not only that, but doesn't Georgie count? He died in 1988. Yeah, so. they're yeah they're a little vague. It's like 26 or 27. He sticks around for a year. <laughs> but I do like this bonding scene with all of them, with the book in there. But they're going to get easily distracted and pulled back into childhood when they go to Ben's house. And man, he's obsessive. All of his walls are covered. We get a good laugh line here, though, when Beverly finds his new kids on the block poster. And, you know, Machete can't help himself in one of the blurry lithographs. We see a clown face and they do a close-up of it. I'm like, just pull back a little, guy. You don't have to... Again, most of his instincts are right, but he just really sometimes has to be the jump scare guy. And I think it cheapens his movie. Oh, no, th this is a lot of jump scares. That That is a complaint for me with this film is a lot of loud noises to tell you when to be scared. And we'll zo yeah, zoom in on Pennywise's face in this old woodcut drawing. I actually like the jump scares here in that it keeps things exciting. Why do you give this one credit for jump scares? I know like an Annabelle or something like that. It, that's an annoyance. I never liked the false jump scares and I never liked the telegraphed ones. The ones where they're walking down a quiet hallway and I can count the beats until it comes out. Here, I never see them coming. Here's the interesting thing. So eight-year-old is in the room. No way she should be watching this, but she knows when to turn around. I'm like, how do you know to turn around? How do you know when a scary part's coming out? She's like, I just know because like they're having a good time and then things are going to go quiet and then the music like she she was able to tell just like based on the sound production of this movie when to turn around because something scary was going to happen i think that's very telling good on her i'm glad she's getting her horror education early and i support <laughs> if the child is right i was certainly indoctrinated to r-rated horror films that were not appropriate for me at the early age and i yeah the r-rated is a recommendation it is not a rule i think i think some kids will really enjoy this because they've captured childhood so well Jump scares, I feel like we get a lot of them. For the next 35 minutes, it's nothing but a series of clowns. And, you know, that's good. It's starting to create the pattern that allows them to understand what they're battling, uh, all the kids in various moments. But because we have seven kids and we want to all give them their due, it's just constantly, I feel like, the same scene. I feel that each one is different because it's all 
occurring very differently. And in a horror film, I want scares. I want monster attacks. I don't want long, drawn-out scenes of conversation. I, I'm liking these kids, and I'm liking their chemistry in a way that I haven't liked in a horror movie in a long time. I mean, they are even above, and I know this is a weird reference, and people are going to be like, why? But I love the chemistry of the Nightmare on Elm Street forecast. These kids are Better than Nightmare on Elm Street 4. That's a high, high compliment. Better than Freddy versus Jason also. And so getting them separated and getting each of them scared and getting each of them a, a fright from a different incarnation of Pennywise, it's what I want in this film. Of course it's what you want. But I'm, it's a, by the effect nulls by them doing it seven times in a row is what I'm saying here. We start with Eddie walking by the way too creepy house. Like, <laughs> stop with the art direction. I get it. It's a scary house. Why has that house not been pulled down? Right. Or just you could tap it and it would fall down. It's so ridiculously decrepit. I like it better in the book. I mean, Eddie being who he is in the book, it's a leper who, you know, the ultimate disease, and Eddie has been taught to fear disease most of all. Here, it just seems kind of like a scabrous bum, and then it turns into Pennywise. I, I mean, the triangle of balloons, the visuals of this film are incredible. No, the, and that is my conflict, is things look great. Like, okay, you get this leper, and then it becomes Pennywise, and he's got that upside-down pyramid of balloons, and they're popping, like... All this stuff looks great, but I do feel like uh, just have it be the leper. Like, that's scary enough. That is what Eddie's scared of is is sickness. So just have it be that. Like, we do we need to punctuate it with the clown and a red balloon every time? Yes, because otherwise you wouldn't know it's Pennywise. Yeah, I, I think you have to I have to you have to go with that. These kids need to conclude that everything they're experiencing is actually the clown. It will be Mike who ultimately says the line, My grandfather says everything bad in dairy is one thing. They need to be able to draw that conclusion because every time they see their thing, it turns into the clown. Have Eddie see a clown that's a leopard, and he's like, got your nose, and he like pose, pulls his own nose off or something. I I don't know. It's it's like thing upon thing upon thing upon thing. Like, uh, simplify it. I don't mind that they're frightened of whatever, and he gets them to the ultimate point of fear, and then is like, hi, it's me, and I'm going to kill you now. But he isn't. It's worth pointing out that Eddie gets away from this pretty easily, and I feel like Pennywise could have gotten him. Yeah, no, that's my problem is Pennywise, like, if it's fear that he needs, you're going to be the most scared the first time he shows up. Like, the more you see Pennywise, the more you're going to get used to him. Go, oh, maybe we could just fight this guy. He's not so scary. Like, he should have just grabbed all these kids the first time he haunted them. And the longer that they're by themselves, yeah, that's when you really want to strike them. As they come together and work together, yes, in numbers, there is strength. And... This is where I will fault the director, Muschietti, is in the book, all of these are very narrow escapes. Like, it is by pure luck and perhaps just a slip out of their hand, but Pennywise almost kills all of them. He is really trying, whereas here, it does feel like Freddy popping up in a dream just to be like, Hi, and you re like remember the first dream with Tina where the sheep is running around just for some su sexual imagery, and then she wakes up having just been scared. It does feel like Pennywise is getting off on the jollies like Freddy instead of trying to kill. Yeah, if the point is that he needs to feed once every 27 years, then I don't know, he he's 
does he have an eating disorder? Why don't you feed? Yeah, and maybe that would help me. Start with seven, and then one of them gets killed, and suddenly the stakes are a lot higher. Suddenly I'm a lot more worried for these seven kids, and I don't expect all of them to make it to the sewer. Yeah, and I think the way King told the story in flashbacks, he kind of accomplished that by having adult Stan commit suicide, and then we got to see young Stan and all the things that would lead to that. So knowing that they would die. Here, though... My favorite of the individual Pennywise attacks is when Beverly is attacked by her own hair. As you said, she cut it all off. She put it down the drain. And I said to Marjorie when watching this, I'm like, that's going to clog. She better get some Drano fast because her dad's <laughs> going to be mad. my daughter said. <laughs> yeah. So here, though, it doesn't just clog, but it springs back out and ties her down. And then instead of a balloon popping blood, a geyser of blood comes out of that sink and just coats the walls, coats her. She has a little bit of a carry look. She's so soaked in blood. It's And that actress again, the face she makes, the terror she sells, I... Oh, it is it is absolutely my favorite of these individual hauntings. Yeah, they're also doing something there with the sexual stuff as well. The, her, she's being held there open mouth as to receive what's coming out of the sink in a big gush. And l- lots of her violence against Pennywise later will be about taking a spear and impaling him through the mouth. Yeah, they're it's- definitely playing with that very graphic sexual imagery. And what I took it was, again, looking back at Carrie, she was buying tampons. We could assume perhaps a first menstruation. Here, the blood is everywhere. You know, I thought it was playing on that specifically female fear. Bill gets some as well that little uh, Georgie is running around. His The light in his room comes on. I, it doesn't look like anyone's been in there since. I see still some Halloween decorations. We know he was taken a Lego turtle. in October. Yes, and the, he was building a turtle. And so I think they're building to all that stuff the TV movie ignored about the turtle space force. And God, that's going to make next week really, really big. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm so scared. (laughs) I'm still not sure they're bringing it in. What the director said is he wanted to make allusions to it so the fans of the book could feel like they're in on a joke. If you consider that a joke. I mean, some people might want to see that realized. Some people might have liked that in the book. I was not one of them. You know, the turtle went on to have a big life in the Dark Tower series. I didn't know that. Oh, no, it's reoccurring? Yeah, it actually is one of the founders of the beam. It vomited our universe. We It existed before life, and instead of a big bang, there was the big turtle vomit. Oh, Jesus Christ. Move on. So, <laughs> it is a vital component of the Dark Tower series. So, you're right, Stuart. Those who love Dark Tower and all of the connections where we even get to meet its sibling or cousin or something... Yeah, they might really want to see a turtle realized. To them, I say go watch Poltergeist to the other side and see what happens when you actually try to visualize this type of stuff in a movie. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Bill goes down into the basement. There's his brother. It floats too. You'll float too. You know, they, they use that in the trailer. Again, all this stuff is good, but I just feel like the next 15 minutes are various jump scares with this clown. And it's all to reinforce the idea that now everyone understands what they're battling here. They're going to go over to Beverly's and they see the blood. The dad didn't see the blood. They're closer to her because they can see and help her clean it up. 
What are you referring to as a jump scare? All of this is legitimate scares to me. None of this is the... To me, it's jump scares because it's loud noises. Yeah. Just so you know, it's like a laugh track for a sitcom. Guys, this is the joke. This is the funny part because you hear everyone else laughing. This is the equivalent for horde. Loud noise. Be scared. Just show me scary imagery and I'll be scared. I don't want to be told. Yeah, I feel like you're defining jump scares as something the cat jumps out and it wasn't what you were expecting and it's not a threat. Anytime anything comes at you, to me, is a jump scare. No, yes, I agree. There's a jump scare and the cat is the what I call the false jump scare where, oh, I jumped and it turned out to be nothing. But here, I just don't notice a lot of those big loud stings of sound and things coming out. The clown splashing through the water and oscillating the way that it does up the stairs. Yeah, I didn't consider that a jump scare. I consider that an exorcist type moment. Not when it's got big, long sound. I don't know. I'll have to go back and watch The Exorcist. I don't know if there's big, long violin stings going just to emphasize how scary this is. You don't. You never have a long note for a jump scare. The jump scare is specifically a specific, a single staccato, punk, and that's the jump. If it continues, that's just a scare. Well, you can carve it however you want. I feel like this clown is popping up and not killing them a lot. And just that keeps going until everyone's collected and they decide they're going to go attack the house. But they they do all of this stuff where they bring in Mike at this point that he is being forced to eat his raw meat by the bullies. And they throw rocks and fight back. And for reasons, because they have a mutual enemy, they are aligned. And he has some more information that they didn't have about Pennywise. And they're building a bigger and bigger dossier against this clown who has been there all this time. Yeah, I like the rock fight. I think that it's good to see them standing up for each other. It's the way that they fight back. I wish that something that they did here, you know, later would help them to beat it but i like that they have this scene of the comeuppance and the true forming of the gang i just feel yes this is an hour into the movie it's exactly halfway and mike needed to come into it earlier mike feels like an afterthought he i I don't say this because they're both black but i feel like he's the winston zedmore of this who just is brought into the group late and never gets his due And again, I know you don't like hearing this, but you can bring him in early when you don't have so many people to introduce. And so they all pile into Bill's garage, and we have them overlay uh, a 1980 map of Derry, a slide of old Derry, and everyone's knowledge is being applied so they can literally see that all of the places where it has attacked in its every 27-year attacks are connected to the sewer lines. And all of that leads to the well house, which ends up being the place where, that you know, the creepy house with the hobo. I got so confused because we'll get, again, Mike, who doesn't get a whole lot of story. He'll mumble something about his family being trapped in the house in a fire and he got out. I'm like, oh, that's the well out. That's the house that they burned. No, that's not. It's a different house. (laughs) I I had the same thought, Jacob. It took me three movies to even get Mike's backstory about his parents. Like, I never even caught that the first two times. (laughs) You know what? There's nothing wrong with not getting everything the first time you watch it. It makes it an enriching viewing to pick up new details, all of that. I mostly compliment this movie for the way that it's able to consolidate a very difficult 
book into a movie that feels like it's really free flowing. It, the problems I'm having are just its excesses. The director sometimes pushes too hard, does too much, or just lets the same beat go on a, a few too many scenes. Here we're going to get the clown again popping out in giant size coming through the projection. Oh, hey, he should just eat them all at this point. Once again, just got want to say that because it's frustrating that he just doesn't kill these kids. Why is he taunting them? He was going to. He was going to kill them, but then the garage door is opened and he can't stand in the light. That's it? The garage door opened and that made him go away? Kids are afraid in the dark and often not afraid in the light. And when you have the group of them together, that's when they're strongest. They, they look pretty afraid when a giant ghost clown is coming out of a slide. Like, that that's scary. I don't care how much light there is. Yeah, it is scary. I love that visual of giant Pennywise. Yeah, it's just, I mean, we've had a lot of it. And uh, you could be judicious. You could pick the best moments. I think this one could be one of the best moments. But once we get to the big spooky house, they know where Georgie was probably at. And Bill's going to ride Silver over there. The other kids come along. It's a litany of this stuff. Not all of this stuff is successful when we go in. Yeah, I like when we get to the haunted house scene, but I feel like that could almost be the climax. Like, get into the sewer. But no, that's, people are going to, it just keeps going. I start to feel the time of this. It is weird to me that we have two assaults on the house. They go as a group here, and we're over an hour into the film. We're an hour 20. This could be the climax. No, we have almost an hour left, but this could be the climax where they've teamed up, they feel brave, and they go after it. But no, they're going to lose this fight. You know, they are losers. They're going to lose. How do they lose? They get separated. They split up. They leave Stan outside to stand guard, so immediately they've already separated, and then they get split up in the house. Again, this reminds me a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street. This A similar thing, but not this, was in the book, but here I feel this house can be whatever Pennywise wants it to be. They can walk through one door, turn around, and then there's three doors, and one says very scary, one says not scary. Of course... All of them are going to be scary. One says trying too hard and they walk through it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like when Eddie like pops out of the bed and spits out a loogie that's like lava, like, nah, that's not good. Like, let's dial that back. That's not really that scary. Like, there are opportunities to be scary, like Richie having a clown phobia, getting locked in that room, do something there. They just... You know, suddenly the door's open and he's out of it. I guess why I call it jump scares, because I feel like they introduced the idea that this child is in some real peril and they very easily allow them to escape that trap without really doing anything to earn that freedom. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's not a jump scare, but that is a bad horror movie. <laughs> I mean, that's bad scares, but I mean, a jump scare is a very specific thing in a horror film. Here, I like the maggoty doll that looks like him in the coffin. I didn't understand the Richie head coming out of the bed. That confused me. I'm like, Richie didn't die, and Richie isn't actually coming out of the bed. Why is Richie spitting acid? That one confused me. I scratched my head. I didn't hate it, but I didn't get it. And I think it's right that they should lose this, that they should try. They were overconfident. Bill was wanting so much to go get Georgie. He did not anticipate how difficult it would be. I think that's right. And the fact that really they're only saved by Beverly. It's because Beverly, who was also waiting outside with Stan, comes in and saves them at the last minute. Here we're going to have Eddie get 
injured. He's going to break his arm through a fall through the floor. Really good-looking prosthetic of a broken arm there, too. And one of the best Pennywise entrances, I love the way he, like, spins around coming out of that refrigerator. Was that CGI, or did they find, like, a carnival person who could contort their body? Because I did like that scene. Half and half. Some of that was CGI, and some of that was literally how Skarsgård can move his body. Oh, so it was Skarsgård doing it. Yeah, it is so seamless, I don't notice the CGI. I just see impossible movements from a very scary creature. Yeah, that's a good one. The coming out of the fridge was very effective. And Bill kind of vanquishes him by doing the Dream Warriors thing of saying none of this is real, which, again, gets back to my point of, like... What are the rules? In Nightmare on Elm Street, which you keep bringing up, when they're in the dream, if they get killed, they die in real life. Here, these are not dreams, and this clown likes them to have a certain flavor of fear. If he can get them to the point that they're scared enough, that makes them delicious and he'll eat them. But he could really overpower them and kill them at any time. And I am kind of dinging him for not doing that more often because these kids look scared enough. And he's playing with his food more than he should. Yeah, I mean, he has the jaws out. He is about to eat Eddie right there and then if Bill and Richie hadn't interrupted. Yeah, but you know what I mean. He Like, he pretends to bite his hand and he pulls back and he giggles. And, like, he's really not going to be aggressive. This is a clown through and through. He is going to be silly. Yeah, and again, as much as I like how this film looks, that just makes it feel like a lesser horror film. Like, I would expect that out of a B-horror film where they don't really have the rules defined. And you could still enjoy it. You could still enjoy the gore. You could still enjoy the scares, whatever. It just feels lesser to me. It, it, if you're going to set up rules, got to play by the rules. And I just don't know what the rules are with it. I don't disagree that in the way that it is filmed and staged, I feel several times that it should have killed them. To me, it's that's a ding, it's a quibble, it's not a major point of contention when everything else is working as well as it is. If, if the rest of this movie wasn't working, then I'd really ding it more, but so much is working. I mean, I love the visual of Pennywise with the fence post through his head that Beverly stabs, and then he spins around and cuts open Ben with that fence post. I mean, so much is good here. But yes, I see it. It's just not bugging me. It's like Stewart said. It's 30%. It's in the back of my mind, but it's always there. Like 30% is not an insignificant amount of issues. And so it's always there. It's not stopping me from enjoying it, but there's problems here. Yeah, what it tells me is that they have a good movie and with restraint, with somebody helping out these performers, just dial it back a little or go for the jugular at key moments here, you would have something that feels less like a series of dioramas of, of, of scary moments and more like these kids were in imminent danger. As is, we're all just waiting for the climax where we know exactly how it's going to turn out because they've been following the book to the letter in that respect. We don't believe that they're going to change anything from King's setup that puts these kids in danger, and there's an hour to go. But there is a breakup. The losers group is going to have to uh, scatter to the wind because they did lose, because this was really scary, because Eddie's mom is furious. She's not going to let him play with them, especially the dirty girl. And all is lost. 
and we're getting it reset with the XTC song, Dear God, they're all living separately again. That puts them in danger again now that we've reached August. And might I just compliment the use of music in this? You already mentioned the cult, but they also have the cure. They have ecstasy. It's just a great alt-80s playlist. It's the cure, but it's not Friday, I'm in love. You know what I mean? Well, that wasn't out until the 90s. Well, okay, but you know what I mean? Like, if this is Stranger Things, they go with the obvious hits. I feel like, yes, they go from period correct music, but it's not like, now that's what I call music, you know, just the top 10. And the lyrics aren't on the nose. Dear God has the emotion needed for the scene, but it's not like they're having a crisis of faith, you know? It's that they're having a crisis about a demon and a friendship, but yet the mood of the song fits the mood of the moment, which I like. Yeah, agreed. And again, this is the craft that I compliment in Machete. When he's doing the best stuff, yeah, he really kills it. He really brings it. And then we move to a scene which, now that I've seen all of that TV show of it, like... Did they just take, is Henry out of play for chapter two? Because now it's going to go to him and the dealings with his dad. Yeah, this is a nice addition, I think, that he uh, might be a bully because of what was done to him. That he is just as much a victim as they are. He has this cop dad that will fire pistols at his feet and probably other abuse too. And Pennywise is going to see that as an opportunity. This is my in. If someone is fearful, if someone is bullied, I can put a balloon on the mailbox and suddenly there's a new switchblade. Oh, and I love the television shows that are on. There's like this kids program that's on the television several times. And, you know, if you pay attention early on in Beverly's house, you'll hear the TV. You'll float down here. We all float down here. Yes, we do. Yeah, Eddie's mom is watching it too throughout the film. Mm -hmm. And here we find Henry's dad is watching it and it's Pennywise then appears among the kids. It's like a really perverted version of Stanley Spadowski's clubhouse where it's telling him, kill your dad. And he puts that switchblade right there, pushes the button, and the look on the father's face of, you son of a bitch, and yet he's bleeding so bad he can't do a damn thing. Yeah, and meanwhile, something similarly disgusting is happening between Beverly and her dad. He's put a new padlock on the door so she can't sneak out, and she's looking awfully pretty, and if you hadn't picked up on it, and I think most of the audience would, we now find out oh, very overtly that being his girl means that he can take her right here on the kitchen floor. Thank God it doesn't go any further than her kicking him in the balls, knocking him out with the top of the toilet, and then being grabbed by Pennywise. And Stephen King saw this movie, and I'll say at the end what he thought of it, but the one piece of feedback he had after seeing this is, was Beverly's dad dead? I mean, the last time we saw him, his head's bleeding on the floor. And so Machete put in some sounds of groaning at that moment to try to tell you the dad is not dead. Beverly didn't kill him. Oh, I thought he was dead. That's interesting. I thought the reason why she was going away at the end to live with someone else is that she didn't have a parent anymore. Oh, see, I, I thought he might be dead, but then, yeah, I took it that he was still alive, but she ain't sticking around in that house. She tried to kill him. Like, she's going off with her aunt or whoever in Washington. Yeah. But anyway, Bill is not giving up on her. He bikes past that lighthouse we've seen time and again. I wonder if that's where the turtle lives, or it's going to see the turtle. <laughs> the turtle does live on the beam. Maybe it's the light beam of the lighthouse. 
He gets there, he sees the message, you die if you try, written in blood on the ceiling. He sees the dead that's apparently not dead on the bathroom floor. And so this is the catalyst to getting the band back together. He runs to the arcade, he finds his friends, and they can rally to save Beverly. Yeah, yeah. the arcade is also in the theater that's showing A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, I might add. I love the marquee of the theater in this. Yeah, all Warner Brothers movies. Yeah, at one point they're watching, uh, one point it's Batman and Lethal Weapon 2. Yeah. Okay, Warner plugging itself, but very period accurate. <laughs> Those movies were out on the 4th of July weekend. And I like how, you know, I wasn't really sure why they went into the sewers as kids, except, oh, let's go get the clown, I guess. But this, you know, let's go rescue one of our friends. And I'm guessing this is different because now Bev's not around to uh, have that gangbang when they go into the sewers because she's the victim here. Pennywise has taken her. Technically, the gangbang's on the way out. But yeah, we'll get there. Right. Wow. On the way out? Yeah. <laughs> that, that is really weird. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of a victory celebration. <laughs> I mean, I guess that is a way to celebrate. Kind of. We'll, we'll get there. But yes, Beverly was with them when they went in because Beverly did have the slingshot, but it also became very much a, uh, again, a psychic battle with Bill and Pennywise and, you know, the book went different than this. Right. No, I like I like this, though. It's it's very clean, giving the boys a reason to go into the sewer after Pennywise. Yeah, Eddie takes his stand, like Greta has humiliated him, written on his cast, told him about the placebo. I don't know if that storyline is as clean here. Do people understand? So here's my issue, like, because I haven't read this book, and this just seemed really weird, because it's a bully telling him, oh, that's all fake, and then he's just, it almost seems like, you know, an anti-vaxxer. Oh, I don't need my medicine anymore. I found my courage. Like, I'm like, no, do you have asthma? Because you still do need that inhaler. It doesn't play very clean. I like it better. Better in the book in the original version where it's the pharmacist telling him because the pharmacist would have no reason to lie and you like to think medical professionals including pharmacists have the patient's best interests at heart here she's mocking him by telling him the truth and then writing loser on his cast it is confusing and it's also way too clean that when they decide to go in he throws his pills down and yells, it's bullshit, it's gazebos. I mean, I laugh at gazebos, but this is way too quick a wrap-up of Eddie's plotline. And what neuroses is Eddie going to have as an adult? Is there a good person in Derry? I was trying to think, you know, like it seems like either the parents aren't there, like Bill's parents just kind of checked out when Georgie disappeared. They're not necessarily a negative, but they don't encourage him exploring what might have happened to his brother. Uh, You know, obviously Beverly's dad is ultra corruptive. I can assume the worst about Henry and because of his bullying tactics. Here we see this overprotective mother and yeah, poor Mike's parents burned up. We'll never know. But his granddad felt ultra gruff with lessons on how to kill sheep. I just feel like Derry is a world that once you hit adulthood, you are kind of dead. Even if Pennywise doesn't kill you, you're just one of the walking dead. The nicest person is the librarian who gets the books for Ben and tells him he should go outside. Right. That's about all you got. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't take her as very nice, though. And Mike's going to bring that bolt gun. He is going... This has changed from the TV movie, where they might not have been cool with kids carrying pistols. Here, this is... They seem like they're much more well-prepared. This feels like this rambling up. I feel like we're going to get the battle that I wanted that I did not in the TV movie. I do think the getting Beverly out of her catatonia is a little bit too easy. I'm not saying take her on a bike ride, but... (laughs) A little bit more than Ben just kissing her Sleeping Beauty style would have been nice. 
And of course, Henry is taken out early. I can presume that he's not dead. They're going to follow the future where the boys are rappelling down into the well and Mike kicks him down there. Maybe he's a zombie. Maybe he is something like a puppet to Pennywise or... In the book, he actually flushed out. They knocked him in water. He ended up flushing out. Maybe that pipe landed in deep shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think they could write a way out of it, or he could just be a zombie. I mean, it, he is being controlled by Pennywise at this point, I feel. Keep in mind, the children are coming back. You could show that scene of how he didn't die and how he ended up getting arrested and blamed for the murders, as we saw in the miniseries in the book. And- and that Beverly moment, I do think, is one of the most effective in the movie when she realizes what you will float means. It's quite literal here that Pennywise will open that big mouth. You'll see his deadlights and your eyes glaze over that you literally like a balloon. Everyone is a balloon to this clown floating up in the top of the cistern. It's a good image. And so, so much better than spider webs. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it looks great. I, I don't know what it means, but I'm not an interdimensional spider either. So maybe that's just what you do with your food. You have a float. I, I think it looks super cool. I wouldn't ask too hard why this is the mechanics of it. Yeah, and just the fact that there's all those bodies there, I presume from hundreds of years of killing, the fact that they're stacked up like that. Yeah, I love the tower of, like, bicycles and just old toys that are stacked up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just centuries, really, of playthings, and, and it, yeah, it just tells you how many victims there have been. Ben Kissinger, yeah, I, I guess we look, we frown on that kind of thing now, but it's necessary because it finally answers her question. She thought that it was Bill, she had been interrogating him early, and he didn't seem to know what lines from the poetry meant. Who could it be? She really hadn't considered Ben as a suitor. She liked him, but I think that, yeah, this will be an interesting dynamic when we see them as adults. Yeah, because she she's still going to go for Bill. Still doesn't want that chubby kid in this one. Yeah, I do think there's that bias there. Mm-hmm. And this is where Bill has to really come to terms with Georgie. He's been trying this whole movie to find him, and there he is, one-armed and all, saying, what took you so long? Take me home. Yeah, I really like this, whoever this actor is that plays Georgie. They're like, you know, why why didn't you come and get me? Like, I buy, like, the panic. Like, I, I could almost buy into Bill thinking this is his little brother because this little actor is so good. Oh, absolutely, yeah. All the kids are good, and yes, I think we have to credit the director as well as the casting director but here you know it is so convincing i think myself that maybe georgie did survive somehow with one arm so when bill put that bolt in his head i'm like what if you're wrong what if that was georgie and you just killed him that's a question to ask if everyone's floating and beverly can come back down and be herself are, is everyone still alive? Have they not been eaten? I guess these are only the people from the 88-89 collection that are floating up top. <laughs> That's how I took it, yeah. Right. <laughs> all of the centuries before the 27-year intervals, all of those dozens of kids have been consumed. And I assume Georgie has actually been consumed. We never find the body. But he would be in this collection. I don't understand this collection. I think he would be in its belly. Why keeping them on floating on the ceiling when he should be eating them all along and preparing for a hibernation? I said don't question the mechanics. <laughs> Just like how it looks. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. I, I think it helps with the line. With the imagery of it floats, it made some kind of weird sense that that is the ultimate place you wind up here. 
And yes, it makes me admire Bill that he's able to finally see through the illusion to not feel guilty about what happened to Georgie. He really shouldn't feel bad about Georgie. He could feel bad about Georgie. He had no real role in, in that child's death. When somebody dies accidentally or suddenly, I know from experience, you can look at all the dominoes that fell, the butterfly effect, and your own role in it, and find a way to blame yourself for that. And so the fact that Bill made that boat I get it. I honestly do get that guilt and the fact that, he, you know, if I hadn't made that boat, Georgie wouldn't go out. Georgie would still be here. So I completely buy it. And Stuart, with the last film, you said, you know, why don't they fight whatever they thought Pennywise was? And I do think they do that here. Like, we'll see Pennywise as Georgie, Pennywise as the crooked lady painting that comes alive and it's biting Dan's face off. I don't know how he survived that. But yeah, yeah, I like that we'll see him doing these different transformations as he's fighting this kid. And let's face it, we know what happens to Stan in the next movie. The fact that he almost got his face ripped off by teeth and was that close to killed, it it justifies what Stan's going to do. Right. Now you can understand why he wouldn't want to go through it again. And Pennywise is smart in the sense that he ultimately realizes he's outnumbered, and so he just tries to say, hey, I'll let you guys live if I can just have Bill. I will take Bill, you guys can grow old, see ya. It makes us like the Losers Club. We see them more as a group than we ever did in that TV movie because they refuse to take the deal. Yeah, it's not just depending on Bev to shoot that slingshot. They're all gonna you know, pick up pipes or whatever and start beating on that thing. And I do love, like, Pennywise does feel so desperate at this moment. Like, we'll see, I don't know, some praying mantis legs come out. We'll see some more, you know, yeah, teeth coming out. We'll, we'll see him trying to transform into different things, but it really does feel like he's panicking as these kids are just beating him. And I like that he makes the deal when he has Bill, because Bill has been the leader of the group. He gave the, you know, typical pre- attack speech that you see in movies all the time, the monologuing like Captain America gave an endgame before they traveled through time, and so we got that, so it's Bill that Pennywise needs to take out, because Bill is the nucleus around which all these other people spin, kill Bill, get the others out, and you will be able to feed again in... 30 years. I mean, again, I said this during the 1991. I'm not quite sure how much the kids win here, given that Pennywise was about to hibernate anyway. His year was almost up. They maybe saved five or ten kids, which is not inconsiderable, but... In the scheme of things. Yeah, but they could also, again, if this film wasn't successful, I'd, I'd be pretty satisfied with this ending that, yeah, he fell down a pipe. He's probably dead. You you can move on. I don't have to worry about never getting a sequel. That, that's not going to come. Uh, I feel like they, they sum it up enough here. So if you want, if this was it, okay, they stopped this clown from returning 27 years and for the rest of, I don't know, the existence of the universe. Yeah, it's very canny in the sense that you can stop here and you you might want to if the movie this weekend is not good this might be the one you want to hold on to but yes you have the option of closing the book cover here and it feels like a complete experience you could forget all the rest just like these loser clubs when they emerge the story is is fading away and maybe they'll come back to fight it if it ever comes back i don't know how they'll remember what they're fighting if they can't remember the summer but beverly has a vision she has a vision of them all their parents age fighting it again. 
And don't count out Silver. Silver shows up in this movie. We didn't talk a whole lot about it, but maybe they all take Silver for a ride and they'll remember. But they go through what we didn't see in the miniseries where they're going to actually swear a blood oath and, you know, do the old Blood Brothers thing. I don't know if that's still a thing, especially in this day of bloodborne diseases. I think Blood Brothers may have died with AIDS or hepatitis, <laughs> but do you remember this? I mean, I did the Blood Brother thing with Billy. Nah, I never did blood. You just spit in your hand and then shake someone else's hand who spit in their hand. Yeah, once or twice. It, it seemed unclean, but yeah, you do it sometimes. <laughs> you sounded like you were forced into it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't my idea. I might have been more Stan in this, but I joined the pact. And it wasn't with me. I didn't force you into it. I never pulled out the blood. It was not with the mass marauder (laughs) to get Pennywise. No, I don't think so. We never did a blood oath. But we do get them standing in a circle. I I have a minor issue. We only see one hand cut on each person, and yet they stand in a kumbaya circle. I'm like, you're going to have to cut both hands. Otherwise, you're just bleeding on skin. (laughs) (laughs) I know, minor thing, but I'm like, you really, uh, unless you're all just going to, like, do a all hands in the middle, like, go team thing, you're going to have to cut both hands. But it's an effective moment. I like the score to this film. I think it works very well. I assist this scene and then just like stand by me like one by one they're gonna walk away and this is the last time the losers club will be whole assuming they follow the book right yeah we're all basing the idea that what we read or what we saw last week is going to be the blueprint they use for chapter two probably i can't imagine this movie is not so different from what's in the book that i feel they do something radically un tested but i do think it would be a great way to surprise us and i'd be impressed if they do have the guts to yeah go down some different pathways because i know some of those pathways in the book are just not successful is machete returning oh absolutely okay and we get one final moment here after they all leave beverly is leaving but bill is going to get that first kiss it's not gonna be ben who's going to end on the romantic note with beverly it's gonna be bill we're gonna have that han luke leia love triangle continue into the sequel yeah i have to believe that that will play a big part of the climax of the next film yeah but she turns into jessica chastain at which point oh forget it ouch (laughs) well that leaves a lot for next week for this week jacob stewart are you into it jacob I guess I'll start with the negatives first. And first time I saw this film in theaters, I definitely had my thoughts, kept them to myself because my wife was excited for it. She just, she, she didn't want to see it in theater because like, she's like, that environment is too scary, too confined. I want to be at home and be able to go to the kitchen and get a drink if I'm getting too scared. So rewatch it. And I'm like, what did you think? And she's like, it wasn't that scary. And that I'm like, nah, that's how I felt. It's actually become like a meme in our household. Like when the most mundane thing happens, we just say scarier than it. And that is my problem is like, I wanted to see this because I'm like, oh, this looks so scary. And maybe you just can't go home again. Maybe once you hit a certain age, it's hard to get scared. But I think about Hereditary, which we reviewed and the scene of like Tony Collette clinging to the ceiling in the dark and like it doesn't call it out. It's just happening off in the corner. And if, if you notice it, you notice it. 
I, I don't know. I feel like I want to do a study now. Just go through horror movies and, and see how many times they use loud musical stings to punctuate a, a scary moment. And if that's a newer development, because that's what annoyed me with this movie is... It's as old as cinema. Yeah, I don't... I think... I don't know. Maybe it's overused now. I, I think about scary films. I don't think about loud noises like canned laughter to tell me to be scared at a moment. They just let things happen. It could be wrong. You need to rewatch the Friday the 13th series, I guess. Uh, see, uh, Friday the 13th, I would not consider scary movies. I, I'm talking, uh, you know, uh, I think about a lot of J-horror, uh, Audition. Like, that is a scary movie. There's not a lot of loud noises in that one. I think about Hereditary. I just, maybe there's the difference there is you want to make something for mass appeal. You got to have that canned laughter to tell you when to be scared. And It's not to tell them when to be scared. It's to make them scared because loud noises make you jump. It doesn't make me scared. No, give me scary images. That's what I want to see. It's a movie. It's not a, a album. Okay, but you are misunder you are misinterpreting film grammar to say it's a laugh track. Mm, I if it's telling you punctuating, it is not. A scary it is there moment. to make you scared because loud noises scare you. It is not there to tell you, hey, this is a scary moment. I'm. A and I'm going to side with Jacob. I do think it is a laugh track. I think you can be scared at the thought of the evil. Usually the subtext should dictate what's upset. That, that's what I'm saying. We, we, I mean, we talked about this. This is our differences, Arnie. Eraserhead, to me, that's one of the scariest movies out there. You didn't even think it was a horror film because that creates emotions within me that are just, I don't want to feel. And so to, maybe that's my type of horror. But that was my disappointment with this film is I just don't think it's that scary. And I, I just had higher expectations for it. That said, it's very well crafted. I, it, it's a fun film to watch. I, I think it's a little bit too long. I start feeling that time in it, but it, it looks good. Great acting. All these kids are great. Art direction, all that is great. I, it's a fun film. I, I just wish it was scary, but still a solid recommend for it. Stuart. You know, Stephen King adaptations, there aren't a whole lot of good ones. So I'm definitely going to just put it out there front and center. This is one of the best. This is because of the craft that is involved. You're going to definitely want to see this. If you see 10 Stephen King adaptations, this is one of them. I don't think it's one of the highest. And the sad thing is I think it could have been. I do think that a director that... Yeah, wanted to make maybe more of an elevated horror experience. I think the one thing you can say about the TV movie that it did a better job than this version is that it really shaped that story into a very specific tale of childhood sexual abuse. And here, it's kind of anything goes. It is, you could call it a laugh track or, you know, whatever you want to throw there. But to me, as an adult, clowns, fangs, werewolves, all that stuff is not as scary as what predators in real life can do so I, I would have liked the movie to have worked on that level but i do think that yeah this is the best stephen king movie since stand by me largely because it understands the importance of getting those good dynamics between the child actors that you know i was their age in the 80s and they capture the period detail and behaviors very well very accurately i really want to be a part of this losers club and i want to see them be victorious and you know these kids like you said mostly unknowns uh, the established actors are going to have to work double time to be as good as them and to bring me into this i think jessica chastain is a very good actress but she's got a work cut out for her because this beverly really kills it and i think that's really the reason you want to see this film uh, overall I guess the, what I said when I walked out of the theater is still how I feel. It's good enough. 
This could have been better. It could have been a whole lot worse, but it's going to satisfy people that like the book or even that like that TV miniseries. It's going to deliver largely 70% of Machete's uh, intentions succeed in being creepy. And that's all it had to do. For me, this is a really strong recommend. Is it a perfect movie? No, it is not a perfect movie, but it is a great horror film, and vying for the position of my favorite Stephen King adaptation. Yes, I know, pissing people off, this may be better than Shining for me. I need to live with it a little bit more, and I need to see if the sequel sullies it. Mmm, there you go. (laughs) Hey, we're getting a Shining sequel too this year. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Which one will do more damage to the original? (laughs) Oh, the Shining sequel. Yes, I know. (laughs) Actually, the worst flight to The Shining is kissing, kissing. That's what I've been missing, <laughs> Stephen Webber. Yeah, it's all uphill after that. <laughs> but I am enamored with Skarsgård in this film. I cannot get enough of Pennywise and his constant contortions and various forms. The child actors here are all so good. The period is so pitch perfect. I have so few complaints about this. I walked out of the theater just amazed, and I've actually, my enjoyment of this film has increased on repeated watchings. If you like horror at all, see it. I think it's better than the book, honestly, because as we mentioned, the book is like coffee grounds. And here, they've taken the coffee grounds, put a filter there, poured some water through it, and given us a wonderful, tasty, hot beverage. Whereas, you don't just want to eat the coffee grounds. (laughs) And that's kind of how I view the book. Now, they've changed quite a bit, but I think they've changed everything for the better. I like the modernization. Because when I heard they were doing it, I'm like... Is it going to be in the 50s? If so, is the sequel in the 80s? The moving forward of putting them in the 80s was a great idea, and it it goes back. I've often thought, now's the time to remake Back to the Future, because we're at the time where Marty went to the future. We could have them go to the past and show the next generation what the 80s was like. Well, yeah, that was Hot Tub Time Machine. Yeah, well, you could do it better, (laughs) although that movie doesn't suck. They could do it better. (laughs) Crispin Glover's the best of it. (laughs) But here, you don't need a Back to the Future. You've got It. This is a great time capsule and a wonderful horror movie I can't get enough of. Just don't bollocks it up next week. Just please. That's all I'm asking. I don't think it'll be as good. I really don't. It has Jessica Chastain in it. But I'm just hoping it can be okay. I can't wait to hear what's worse, Jessica Chastain or a... A fucking flying turtle. Yeah, we'll see what they do with all that. I, I tend to feel the same way. I feel like they took the best stuff out of the book. They they left the, the hard work for themselves to do in chapter two. And if they're not doing their own version and radical reinvention, then I think that there's no way that it can be as good. I am excited about some of the casting. I do think that James McAvoy is going to be better than John Boy. Well, the TV movies should not be... <laughs> The bar by which you measure any of it. I don't know. Jack Nicholson was just barely better than Steven Weber. I mean. <laughs> yeah. My hope is, is that there's a lot of people that are going to be going to the theaters this weekend and they really want to have a good time. And I hope it can do that. I hope that they can recreate 
I know that there's going to be a lot of jump scares. I know that there's going to be a lot of moments. My hope is that they're able to still craft that story, still do the streamlining, and get us a very satisfying story and conclusion for these characters. Because I think there's quite a possibility they'll go beyond the book. If this is as massive as I expect it to be, chapter three, chapter four, <laughs> you keep me mentioning Freddy Krueger, and I think that's the game plan. I think Warner Brothers would love for Pennywise to take on that mantle, and why not? I mean, you like Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, more than either one of us. I'll agree with you, but judged on that parameter, this might be the best Nightmare on Elm Street movie ever made. Mm, this or Dream Warriors, my God, that's a tough choice there. Yeah, they're similar, but this one's got a lot more polish. It's just got a lot more craft. Yeah, but it's got a lot less prime time, bitch. I guess if that's what you want, <laughs> go with Dream Warriors. Well, all I know is, hey, we're blessed to live in a time where we can watch both. <laughs> and we're blessed to have listeners like those who are listening to this show. And if you have enjoyed this trip back to 1989, have we got the donation series for you. Yeah, we already covered Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5. We've covered Batman. And we have covered Lethal Weapon 2. It was part of our Platinum Donation Series. Was this planned or did, is this just guidance from the Cosmic Turtle? It's the turtle. Mm, I am the Cosmic Turtle. <laughs> You puked out, now playing schedule, and this is how it fell. We got one more movie. We've been covering the standalone hits, the stuff that didn't get the franchises, didn't have their own series to them. We started with Dead Poet Society and worked our way through a lot of genres. We're ending with a big wannabe summer blockbuster. The Abyss wasn't the hit that other James Cameron movies have been. I think it is his lowest grossing film next to Piranha 2. Okay, I was going to ask. <laughs> he was fired from that. I know you didn't even get to finish that movie, but I don't quite call that his film. But yes, I have always had a soft spot for it, and I look forward to reliving my childhood this Friday when we cover both cuts of that film. And this is our last week for that donation drive. So if you want to get in and get... Up to 47 bonus podcasts, including all the works of Quentin Tarantino, the Sergio Leone, Good, Bad, and Ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America, and all the Lethal Weapon films, plus Men in Black and more. Head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It is your support that allows us to do the show week after week, including all the Stephen King to come. And if you are a patron, be sure to check your email. That link has been sent take that survey we want to make sure that that program is the best possible for all of you who support our show monthly and just so generously so thank you all for your support thank you for listening jacob stewart thanks for going in the sewers with me until next time it is over i swear if it isn't dead if it ever comes back We'll come back to. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Come back anytime. Bring your friends. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You know, Eddie, oh, it's been great. What? Okay, see you later. Bye, Eddie. Bye, Eddie. Bye, Eddie. Bye. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. This isn't real enough for you, Billy. I'm not real enough for you. 
It was real enough for Georgie. <laughs> and also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Don't you want it? In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. From what I hear, the list is longer than my wang. That's not saying much. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I never felt like a loser when I was with all you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We were all together. That's why we're still alive. Well, I plan to keep it that way. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I forgot. How could I forget? You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I've got to do something. Help me. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're working too hard, kid. Associate produced by Jason. You're doing fine. You can handle this. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I know you're going to think this is crazy. I certainly think it's crazy. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Do what you always do. Start talking. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. They're gazebos! They're bullshit! Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. So. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. <laughs> I'll drive you crazy and I'll kill you all. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. See you in your dreams. Beep, beep, Richie.